a different king, like Darius the first, or even Artaxerxes the first. We're going to go with Xerxes for today's class, but whatever the case, the account of Esther plays out after Zerubbabel's return to Jerusalem with his group of Israelites, and probably before Ezra's return. So that puts the events of Esther between 537 and 467 BC. So that's why we're in Esther. And many of you probably know the story of Esther from childhood, but let's investigate this account together to make sure that we really know what the book of Esther is all about and to make sure that we're actually applying the truths of Esther as the author intended us to. We're going to be considering the whole book of Esther today. We're going to focus on three main passages in Esther. Here's our agenda. We're going to first see how an exiled Jewish young woman rose into the role of Persian queen. And then we'll see how a nearly murdered Jew became a powerful government administrator. And then we'll see how a day of doom for the Jews turned into a day of victory. And we'll finish considering by considering application for ourselves. Let's pray as we begin. Our great God, this is a, a wonderful account that you have before us today. Please help me to be able to explain it. Please cause the people, move in the hearts of the people to apply it, to understand it, and to apply it. I pray that you be with your people now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. This is where we're going to find our first section that we're looking at, Esther chapter 2. That's page 511, if you're using the Pew Bible. Page 511. And before we read Esther 2, verses 1 to 18, let me just summarize what appears in Esther chapter 1. I'll put the screen back for a second. In the third year of his reign, King Ahasuerus, and he has the Persian king, remember the Persian Empire is in control now, King Ahasuerus holds an incredibly lavish banquet for all his great men. And at this banquet, Ahasuerus calls on his queen, Vashti, to appear because he wants to show off her beauty to all his guests. Queen Vashti, however, refuses to come when she is called. The text does not say why. But angered at her refusal, the king removes Vashti from being queen. That's the backdrop from chapter 1. Now let's read what happens next in chapter 2. This is Esther 2, verses 1 to 18. Follow along as I read. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants, who served him, said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, and to the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, son of Jared, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives, who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Hegai, 
that Esther was taken to the king's palace and to the custody of Hegai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the, ble- to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Now when the turn of each young lady came in to go into King Ahasuerus, after the end of her twelve months, under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women, the young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem, to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go in to the king unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king, she did not request anything except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month Tevinth, and the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. All right, this is our first passage. Let's observe. Notice a number of different things. First, notice we're not told how much time has gone by since Vashti's removal. This could be right after, or it could even be several years later. Notice the plan to replace the queen. Beautiful virgins are brought from throughout the empire, remember this is a huge empire, Persian empire, and added to the king's harem, that is the king's house of women. They're probably added as concubines. These women are then to undergo beautification, afterwards present themselves one by one to the king. The one whom the king favors will become the new queen. Notice the city in which these events take place, Susa, one of the four capitals of the Persian Empire. The citadel or palace at Susa is going to be the backdrop for most of the events that take place in this book. Notice Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jew and a great-grandson of Kish, who was a Benjamite taken under the exile Jeconiah. Jeconiah is another name for Jehoiakim, which means Kish was exiled in which step of Judah's destruction? First, second, or third? Not the first, the second. <clears throat> so the first, the first king that um, at the exile takes place is Jehoiakim. Then the second king is Jehoiakim. And then the third king is Zedekiah. So a second step of destruction means 599 BC. Now, why is that important? Well, remember in the second destruction, which group of people were taken? It was the great and, great and skilled men and their families. So that means that Kish was probably someone of importance and that there may be a heritage passed down to Mordecai. 
Now, how are Mordecai and Hadassah related? They are cousins. That's right. She is his uncle. She is his uncle's daughter, Mordecai's uncle's daughter, which means that Mordecai and Esther are cousins. But Mordecai must have been a bit older than Esther because it says he took her into his own care when her parents died. And the two of them live in Susa, which is deep in Persian territory. Think Iran. Think pretty far to the east. And notice that Hadassah is also called Esther. Hadassah is a Jewish name meaning myrtle, and it refers to a kind of shrub. But... Esther is a Persian name, and it's refer it refers to either the goddess Ishtar or to the Persian word for star. Notice that Hadassah, that is Esther, is described as a young lady beautiful in form and in face. And unsurprisingly, due to her beauty, notice that Esther is taken along with the rest of the beautiful virgins of the empire to be part of the king's harem. The text doesn't give us any clues as to whether she went voluntarily or whether she was forced, but she did go. Notice her treatment in the king's palace. She finds favor in the eyes of Hegai, the eunuch overseeing the women, and is given special attendance and a special place in the house, in the king's house for women. Notice, though, that per Mordecai's instructions, Esther keeps her Jewish heritage secret, does not reveal that she is Jewish. Mordecai continues to be concerned for Esther's welfare and visits the front of the court of the harem daily, which indicates that Mordecai must be a man of some ability or position in the government that he would have access to this prestigious area. It's not like everybody can just walk up to the front of the court of the harem. So he may have been a scribe or have some other position in the government. Notice how long Esther is beautified before she is allowed to see the king. Twelve whole months. And then Esther has to wait. It's the seventh year of Ahasuerus' reign before Esther gets to meet the king. That's more than four years since Vashti was deposed. Meanwhile, verse 15 says of chapter 2, Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. When Esther's turn finally does arrive, she takes with her exactly what Hegai advises. Though, again, we're not told what that is. It perhaps was an article of clothing or a piece of jewelry that Hegai knew would please King Ahasuerus. Esther takes it. She goes to meet the king for the first time. And how does the king respond? He loves her more than any of the other women. And he makes her queen and even gives a banquet in her honor. And for the third time, we see the phrase in the passage, she found favor. All right, with these observations, let's pause and interpret a little bit. Why does Hadassah go by the name Esther? That seems to make the most sense, right? That Hadassah is an obviously Jewish name. Esther is not a Jewish name. So this is part of her concealing her identity, according to Mordecai's instructions. Very good. But why is Mordecai so intent on keeping Esther's Jewishness a secret? Why might that be? Hmm, he saw a place for her to save the Jews. 
that would be very forward thinking uh, of Mordecai. I'm not sure if he'd be able to see that far ahead, but maybe he, he was thinking, if I reveal her Jewish identity, maybe she won't be as successful, won't be able to get into a position that would be good for her or good for the people as a whole. So maybe there's something to that, though that would, that would require incredible foresight by Mordecai. There could be other reasons. What might be another reason? Why conceal her Jewish identity? It could be because, or is somebody about to say something? Yeah, um, is that Shay? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah thanks Shay. Actually, referring back to the previous comment, right, if we connect Esther's keeping her heritage a secret with her going in before the king. Now I see the previous comment that she might have a position that would help her people. Though this keeping her Jewishness a secret seems to have happened before even going in to the king's harem. I mean, she's called Esther. She's not called Hadassah. So this seems to be uh, the way that she lives, the, the whole experience of her living in exile, that she's constantly keeping her heritage a secret. But yes, it's also kept a secret before the king. But now back to what you're saying, Shay, maybe it's because being a Jew could bring her hostile treatment from the king or from others. And that's certainly a possibility. We know that from the book of Ezra, there were people in the Persian Empire who did not like the Jews. And we also know from the book of Daniel that there were people who feared the Jews and they feared the Jewish God. So perhaps those two things are connected. People fear the Jews, but, and because they fear them, they also dislike the Jews. So Mordecai may have been trying to protect Esther from any disadvantage she might have by being known as a Jewess, both from the king and from the king's officials and the other people of the empire. So it could be a practical measure. It could be one out of fear of hostility. And you might ask, does this show a lack of faith in God? Why are they trying to hide that they are God's people, that they are Jewish? Daniel never hid his heritage. He was praying openly, even when the law forbid that. Uh, it's possible that Mordecai and Esther are not exercising great faith. Some even suggest that they were more secular Jews, that there's not a lot of evidence in this book of their great devotion to Yahweh. But we actually don't have very much evidence in this book to say either way don't really have enough details to make a strong judgment. But in any case, Mordecai wanted Esther's heritage to remain a secret, probably from some sort of practical consideration. Well, what happens next? Let's move to our next section in Esther 3. This one's going to be a little bit longer. Esther 3, 7 to chapter 5, verse 8. Um, hold on just one second. Okay, so let me summarize what happens at the end of chapter 2 going into chapter 3. End of chapter 2, it just so happens that Mordecai overhears a plot to kill King Ahasuerus. The plot, or he makes it known, the plot is foiled, the conspirators are executed, and Mordecai's name is noted in the king's chronicle. But he's not given any reward. In the beginning of chapter 3, we hear about the rise of a certain Haman, an Agagite, in the king's court. 
King Ahasuerus promotes Haman to a high position, and all people customarily bow down and give Haman honor whenever he passes by. All people except Mordecai, that is, who will not bow. The text does not tell us exactly why Mordecai does not bow, except that when asked to relate why he's not bowing to some other people, he mentions that he is a Jew. What's, what does being a Jew have to do with not bowing down to this person? Well, we're left to try and figure out that connection. Mordecai's thinking may have something to do with Haman's heritage, because it says the text says that Haman is an Agagite. And remember, we actually know who Agag was, or Agag, was in the Bible. He was king of the Amalekites. He was part of an ancient enemy of the people of Israel. And God commanded Saul to annihilate this people along with their king. So Agag, if Haman is an Agagite, it goes back to it goes back centuries to an ancient enemy of Israel. So Haman is exalted. Haman is enraged by Mordecai's not giving honor to Haman, and he determines to destroy both Mordecai and Mordecai's people now that he knows that Mordecai is a Jew. I bring this up to Esther 3.7. Let's read this next passage into chapter 5, verse 8. So follow along with me. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all the other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Then the king took a signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also to do with them as you please. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, as it was written, just as Haman commanded the king to the king's satraps. Uh, and it was written, just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict is to be issued as law in every province. Oh, a copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out, impelled by the king's command, while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. 
Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you in your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms, and the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. Esther said, if it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for them, or prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. As they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? But shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther replied, my petition and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and to do what I, and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. We'll stop there. Okay, bigger section here. Let's observe. Notice Haman casts pur, or lot. Remember what casting lot means. It means to determine the answer to a question by randomly throwing certain objects and seeing what turns up. Think something like dice. Haman casts purr and it yields the twelfth month. 
After casting Pur, Haman presents his request to the king that a certain annoying people be destroyed from the empire. Haman claims that this people does not obey the king's laws, and he even offers to pay the king 10,000 talents of silver. Remember, that's about 75,000 pounds, or 37 tons, of silver, if the king will agree to the order. And notice that Haman, at least not initially, does not mention to the king which people he has in mind. The king agrees, and the command goes throughout the empire, to every province that the people should destroy, kill, and annihilate, and plunder the Jews on the 13th day of the 12th month. And notice the effect of this decree. The city is filled with confusion, while the Jews in every province, Mordecai included, are devastated. Notice the descriptions in this passage of their reaction. They are mourning, weeping, wailing, fasting, and laying on sackcloth and ashes. Imagine experiencing this yourself. The government has just decreed that your whole people, both young and old, men and women, should be exterminated on a certain day 11 months from now because you are supposedly a rebellious people, and all your goods will be taken from you after you're dead. This would be devastating. And furthermore, this command, this law of the king, is a law of the Medes and Persians. And what do we know about their laws? That's right. The laws of the peace, or the decrees of the king of the Medes and Persians cannot be revoked. Once it's decreed, you can't go back. And that just makes the situation even worse. Mordecai informs Esther of the dark news and asks Esther, commands Esther, to plead for the Jews before the king. But Esther tells Mordecai that going before the king without being summoned is against the law. Violating that law means death. It's a capital crime. Unless the king extends the golden scepter to the one who comes in. Moreover, the king has not summoned or seen Esther for 30 days. But then notice Mordecai's poignant response to Esther. It says three, three things. One, don't think that because you're in the palace, you will escape. Two, because if you don't do anything, deliverance will arise for the Jews in another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And then three, and who knows, maybe you were elevated to this royal position to rescue your people. You notice Esther's reply? She determines to do exactly as Mordecai says, but asks the Jews in Susa to fast for her three days, she and her maids doing likewise. Fasting usually includes prayer, though it doesn't actually say prayer there. On the third day, she does as Mordecai says. She breaks the law and goes before the king. And what does the king do? He extends the golden scepter. And notice that phrase again. She found favor in his sight. King asks, excuse me, <clears throat> King asks Esther what her request is. And she surprisingly tells the king that she would like the king and Haman to come to a banquet she has prepared. I don't know as a reader, you probably were expecting something else, but no, that's what Esther, that's what Esther says to the king. The king grants her request, and the king and Haman come quickly to the banquet. When the king asks her again what her request is at the banquet, she still doesn't present her real request. She says, please come again to another banquet tomorrow, and then I'll tell you what I really want. Okay. Oh, thanks, Anna. 
doesn't take a little uh, sip of water here. Ah, all right. For what was Haman casting purr? Yeah, Rob. That's got to be it, because that's what appears right before he goes to the king to grant the request. He's trying to determine, presumably to get divine, source, divine forces on his side, the best day for carrying out the extermination of the Jews. And he determines it's in the 12th month, apparently on the 13th day of the month. Now consider Mordecai's words to Esther. This whole thing about the, the, the three things he says in response to her being a uh, mentioning that she might die if she goes before the king. Now, just because what he says there, don't think you're going to escape. If you don't do anything, there will be deliverance, but you'll perish. And maybe you were meant for this time. Just because someone says something like that in narrative doesn't make it true. But we should ask, are Mordecai's claims, those three things that he says, are they true? I would say that they are true. How do we know that they're true? Not just because Mordecai says it, and Mordecai could be wrong, but we know something else that's not mentioned here. How, why, can we, why can we say that the, the things Mordecai says to Esther are true? Well, if we think about, or are you about to answer, answer, oh, somebody in the back I think is raising a hand. Right. Yeah. So if we just look at the rest of the Old Testament, we see evidence for the claims that Mordecai makes here. As you were saying, Dwayne, <coughs> excuse me. First of all, we know that um, God promises to punish those who do evil or who refuse to do good. And so that would go along with his claim to Esther. If you don't do anything, know that you're going to perish. But as Wayne was saying, God also promised to preserve his people. He says, even when he judged Israel, I'm not going to make a complete end of you. And he has a whole bunch of promises that have to be fulfilled in the future, including things involving the Messiah. So when Mordecai says there will be deliverance for our people, he's going back to God's promises. And God says, I'm not going to allow you to be cut off. I may allow you to be chastened, but I'll never let you be destroyed. So he's going back to the promises of God in the Old Testament, or in the rest of the scripture. So what then do these words, since they are true, what do they reveal about Mordecai's beliefs? Yeah. 
Yeah, he has at least some faith in Yahweh. He believes in the faithfulness and sovereignty of God on behalf of his people, both to preserve and save, but also to judge those who do evil. Because he says, Esther, you don't do anything. You're going to be judged. So Mordecai stresses, so even though, and this I think is valuable too, even though Mordecai says our people will be delivered, he stresses to Esther her responsibility as one given unique opportunity to help her people. She must act or face the consequences. Esther seems to demonstrate some faith as well, both in her fasting and her request for the people to fast. So praying to God, looking to uh, go to God in faith and in hope. And then in actually putting that faith in action by appearing before the king. She didn't know what would happen, but she knew what her responsibility was, and she knew that God could preserve her. And God did. But why does Esther not present her petition right away? Why does she stall twice? We're not told, but what could be one of the reasons? Is there any advantage to not presenting the request right away? We can perhaps think of a couple of reasons why she might do this. One, she might simply be afraid. There are a number of things that could go wrong, things working against her. This is a powerful king. She's about to accuse and uh, contradict one of the decrees made by the king and one of the most powerful rulers under the king. She's a Jewish young woman. If she reveals her heritage, what will the king think? So maybe she's afraid. Or maybe she thinks she just needs more time. Not everything is in place yet that needs to be in place. And so she, she needs a little bit more time. Or maybe it's a strategy, a purposeful strategy to get the king more and more interested. And we're going to see that as, as these uh, banquets go on, that the king really does become concerned as to what uh, Esther's request is. And when she finally makes it known, he is very emotionally invested. And we're going to see just how he reacts. We ultimately can't know the reason that Esther doesn't present her request right away. But it is essential that she doesn't because of what happens next in the text. She probably didn't know what was about to happen, but we're going to find out. We're going to see that it was very important that it did. Look over to Esther 7 now. And I'm going to summarize the rest of chapter 5 and 6. After being invited to the banquet, Haman boasts to his family and his friends. This is Haman. He boasts to his family and his friends about all his greatness and good fortune. But he also mentions that he hates that Mordecai never will bow to him. And his wife and his friends recommend that Haman build a gallows for Mordecai, which Haman does. Haman then goes to visit the king to ask that Mordecai be executed. He's not going to wait for the Jewish day of doom. He's going to execute Mordecai immediately. At least that's his plan. But that night, this is the night in between the two banquets, the king can't sleep. And he asks someone to read the chronicle to him. And he hears from the king's chronicles that Mordecai saved the king, but was never rewarded for his service. While thinking about what kind of reward to give Mordecai, the king notices that Haman is in the court, and he calls Haman in, and he asks what Haman would suggest as a reward. Now, Haman, thinking that he's the one getting the reward, the king doesn't mention who's getting the reward, but Haman thinks it's him, he suggests giving the man a horse and a robe that belonged to the king for one day, Given those things for one day and have the men led through the city 
the city square by one of the king's great princes, announcing to all who see, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. The king replies, great idea, go do all that for Mordecai. And the next day, that's what Haman does. Haman intended to exalt himself and kill Mordecai, but that's not what happens. Instead, Haman, er, Mordecai is the one exalted, and Haman is the one who has to lead him around. This is a very bad turn of events for Haman. He tells it to his wife and uh, friends. And when they hear that Mordecai is a Jew, they say, Haman, if you're opposing a Jew, you're going to fall. This is just the beginning of your downfall. This is a very portentous word. Because just then, Haman is promptly escorted to Esther's second banquet, which is where we pick up the account in Esther 7. So let's look at Esther 7, 1, 2, 8, 14. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be done. Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition, and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now if only we had been if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who would presume to do thus? Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. And Haman became terrified before the king and, the, and queen. The king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbanah, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king's anger subsided. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, or, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke against the king, fell at his feet, wept and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite, and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the golden scepter to Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. Then she said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and to him they have hanged on the gallows, and him they have hanged on the gallows, because he had stretched out his hand against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring. 
For a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. So the king's scribes are called at that time in the third month, which is the month Sivan, on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to every province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to their script and their language. He wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horses, riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. In them, the king granted the Jews, who were in each and every city, the right to assemble and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month Adar, a copy of the edict to be issued as law in each and every province was published to all the peoples so that the Jews would be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers, hastened and impelled by the king's command, went out riding on the royal steeds, and the decree was given out at the citadel in Susa. All right, let's observe this last section. When Esther reveals her petition and situation, notice the king's great indignation. He demands to know who has schemed against her and her people. When he hears that it is Haman, the king becomes enraged and goes into the garden for a moment, probably to think. Notice Haman's response. He's terrified, begs for mercy from the queen, falling on her couch and presumably onto her a little bit because the king interprets Haman's actions to be assault. And then notice the turnabout. Who is hung on the gallows meant for Mordecai? Why, Haman himself, the builder of the gallows. And notice who replaces Haman in his position before the king. Mordecai himself. The household of Haman is given to Esther, and Esther gives it to Mordecai. When the king's anger subsides, Esther again begs the king to save her people. But what can be done, since the law of the king cannot be revoked? But the king gives Mordecai and Esther authority to write a new edict. And Mordecai comes up with a clever plan. Order that the Jews be allowed to gather and defend themselves on the day of the attack that has already been decreed. Did you notice anything about the wording of Mordecai's counter-decree? Something similar to, something similar to the first decree. I can't see if someone's raising a hand. Nobody? You may have noticed the repetition of a certain phrase, destroy, kill, and annihilate. And also the inclusion of women and children. And the command to plunder the spoil. So basically, whatever was decreed against the Jews is now decreed on behalf of the Jews. They can do that to their enemies. And the command goes out speedily to every province. Now, we don't have time to read the rest of Esther. But I'll summarize the results. The Jews throughout the empire rejoice when they hear of the new edict. And the dread of the Jews comes upon the people throughout the empire. And some even convert and become Jews after they hear this new decree from Mordecai and also see Mordecai being exalted in position before the Persian king. The Jews prepare for this day, the 13th day of the month of Adar, the 12th month, as do their hardened enemies. And on the appointed day, there is battle. The Jews, assisted by the leaders and governors in every place, 
they destroy their enemies. 75,000 people, 75,000 enemies are killed, with 800 killed just in Susa over two days, including Haman's 10 sons. Poignantly, though, the Jews do not take any of the plunder, but after the victory, they do celebrate and feast all the next day. The day of doom then becomes a day of salvation. Instead of Israel's enemies destroying Israel, Israel destroys them. Esther and Mordecai command the Jews to commemorate the feast days as permanent holidays. The 14th and 15th days of the 12th month become the Feast of Purim, which means lots, going back to what Haman did. And this feast is still celebrated by Jews around the world today. Let's ask some interpretation questions one more time based on this passage and what we've seen before. Throughout this whole account of Esther, who strangely has not been mentioned at all? Say it again. God, that's right. We haven't heard God's name at all. Not Yahweh, not Adonai, not anything. But God is clearly here in this story. How do we know this? How can we say that though God's not mentioned, he is certainly here? Uh, Craig. Exactly. If we look at what happens in the story, you would say, wow, that was lucky, or wow, what are the chances? But it just keeps on happening like that, and all towards a purpose that benefited God's people. This is not random. This is not the mere casting of a lot. This is purposeful. Someone is bringing all these things to pass, though unseen, and it is God. And I think we can supply a reason as to why the author has chosen to do this. Why has the author chosen to show that God is clearly active, even though he doesn't mention God at all? Why does the author do that? Yeah, Ron. Yeah, I mean that's true. Uh, the author doesn't have to say the word God to give the uh, to give the impression that, or to to indicate that God is clearly at work. But he's chosen purposefully not to mention the word of God. Esther is one of I think just a couple books in the Bible that don't mention God at all. I think maybe Song of Solomon is another one that doesn't explicitly mention God. So he's done that on purpose. And I think he's trying to say something about something related to God by doing that, namely about providence. And wants to emphasize that even though you might not see God, you might not see his presence, any manifestation of his presence, you might not see any miracle from God, nevertheless, God is still acting in the amazing way. He's still acting according to his promises and still bringing about his good purposes. This is all about the providence of God. You don't have to see God to realize that God is at work, invisibly, secretly, in the circumstances. And even by not mentioning God's name, but showing that God is clearly active, the author reinforces that idea to us. This is about God's providence. I think someone once said that God's simple providence is just as powerful and amazing as any of God's spectacular miracles. 
I mean, just look at what he brought to pass for the Jews in the days of Esther. And there was no fire from heaven. There was no vision of a prophet. And yet there was this amazing result. This is God's simple providence, his astonishing providence at work. Thinking about the rest of the scriptures, why was Haman's plan of genocide doomed to fail? Well, actually, I think we've already answered this question. We, we know that Haman's plan contradicted exactly what God promised to Israel. And not just Israel, but going back to Eve, going back to Abraham, going back to David, a Messiah and Redeemer had to come from the people of Israel for the people of Israel, and his people had to be preserved. There have been many times throughout Israel's history where someone sought to destroy the people of Israel. You can think back to the Egyptians. Pharaoh sought to stop the multiplication of the, of the people of Israel and just keep them as slaves. Or when Athaliah tried to destroy the royal house of David, and in the New Testament, we have Haman who tries to kill all the, the babies in Bethlehem. There's been efforts throughout history, even in the Bible and since then, to destroy the Jews or destroy the line of David. But God's not going to let that happen. Either miraculously or providentially, God will make sure that does not happen. Because he's going to keep his promises. God may allow Israel to be temporarily afflicted, but he would never let them be destroyed. So you see how this all fits in with the the holiday, Purim. Purim is the Feast of Lots. What's more random than throwing lots? But scripture says the lot falls into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Nothing is random. God is in control. And this Feast of Lots actually turns that idea of randomness on its head. It was actually God's providence at work, and that was commemorated. You may have noticed a certain pattern in this account. Three times we see the same event take place. What's the pattern in this book? First, it happens with people, and then it happens with a nation. What's the pattern? Yeah, Rob. And what's the flip side of that? Exactly. We see this pattern of divine reversal. And it's all based, I think, Rob, on what you were saying about pride and humility or being outside of God's promises and those who are part of God's promises. Because consider, we have Esther and Vashti. We have Mordecai and Haman. And we have the Jews and their enemies. Vashti is suddenly taken from a position of exaltation and brought low. Well, Esther, this seemingly random Jewish young exiled woman, is put into her place. And you have Mordecai, this Jew who is going to be murdered by Haman. He takes Haman's place, and Haman's the one who's executed. And then the Jews, they are going to be destroyed by a decree of the king, but it's their enemies who are destroyed. And the Jews experience the victory. So just... Just as you were alluding to, this reversal is all part of what God expresses in his law. We could go into many verses, but 
Go back to the Abrahamic covenant. What did God promise to Abraham? Those who bless you, I will bless. But those who curse you, I will curse. If you go back to any of the promises or, or the many promises of God to deliver Israel, I'm going to destroy your enemies. Even when God was promising exile to Israel, a number of times he said, I'm going to allow you to be threshed. I'm going to allow you to be chastened, but then I will destroy your enemies and I will exalt you again. And we're seeing that principle being played out in an in instance here in the book of Esther. God destroys the wicked proud. He brings them low suddenly, but for the righteous who wait, for his people who wait, they are exalted at the right time. This is something that the writer of Esther wants to emphasize to us. God, according to his promises, is in the business of producing reversals. The proud will be brought low, the humble will be exalted. And so, whoever the writer of Esther was, he's telling the exiled Jews or the newly returned Jews, do not despair when you see the wicked prospering. The Lord sees, the Lord knows. At the right time, he will bring reversal. Those who mourn now will be comforted, to borrow some of the Beatitudes. And those who laugh now will wail. In due time, God will make everything right and give himself the glory that he is due. There will be a reversal according to God's promises. So what does all this mean for us? Well, certainly you can see that these principles that we've just discussed, they go beyond the days of Esther or even the days of the Jews returning from exile. They are for us. They are for us who have been brought into the people of God. So here are a few questions to get us thinking about what applying Esther means for our lives. Number one, are you humble before the Lord? Or are you proud? This whole account is a dramatic illustration of God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So which one are you? Number two, do you take comfort or security in prosperous circumstances? I urge you, don't be so naive, because God can turn your situation upside down in a moment, just as he demonstrated here. Number three, are you afflicted, seemingly doomed because you belong to God, because you are following God? Do not despair. God will vindicate you at the proper time. He can reverse your circumstances in a moment, and we already know that he will reverse them. In eternity, those who mourn now, they will be comforted. Number four, do you rest on God's providence in your life, seeing that every circumstance is being mysteriously and perfectly arranged by God for your good and God's glory? You know Romans, uh, the passage in Romans. Let's not try to interpret God's will through our circumstances, but let's remember that we can trust God despite what we see in our circumstances, because of his providence. And then finally, number five, do you use God's providence as an excuse to disobey his commands? Do you say to yourself, God's will is going to happen anyway, so I don't have to do anything? Well, remember what Mordecai said to Esther, because those words were true. God will accomplish his will despite your disobedience, but then you and your house will perish. Do not neglect your responsibility in light of God's sovereignty. You are called, dear believer, 
You are called to good works. You are called to gospel witness. You are called to glorify God. If you obey, you will experience the blessing of being the means of God's sovereign will. But if you neglect the good you ought to do, God will still glorify himself, but it will be at your expense. You won't get to enjoy it. Any final comments or questions? Well, if you think of anything that you'd like to share with me, or if you have a question, feel free to email me. Uh, make a point of responding to the emails, because I still want to serve Calvary, even though I'm over here, so don't feel like, oh, I don't want to bother him. It's not a bother. And this concludes our brief study on the book of Esther. Next week, we'll take a look at the book of Daniel one more time as we consider Daniel's visions of the future. Let's close in prayer. Our Lord, your providence is so great. It is so mysterious and beautiful. Lord, we can think, as believers in your Son, we can think back to how your providence has already been at work in amazing ways in our lives. And Lord, that's a great comfort because we know that you're never going to let things get out of control, nor are you going to let us be um, abandoned. You will always provide, even through the fire, even through the water, even through the trials, Lord. You will be with us, and you will eventually bring about reversal. You will vindicate those who wait upon you. So, Lord, help us to wait upon you. Lord, help us not to be weak. Deliver us from our weak flesh, God, that we would trust you, glorify you, and display your light to the world. Let's not be passive, but embrace our responsibility while taking comfort in your sovereignty. pray that you bless the rest of Calvary's service today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, I'll see you next week.